Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? All right. Good to see you guys. Man, what a great time in worship. You know, I was just really moved in the presence of God today, just thinking about that our, it's such a beautiful thing that we have in, in the Christian faith that it is equal parts cerebral and creedal, uh, theological, intellectual, and it's also supernatural and uh, completely mysterious. Um, we have this incredible opportunity every Sunday to connect with both of these, uh, these cores of the Christian faith. We get to come and hear God's word and, and be transformed by that. We're going to talk about that today. And in these times of worship in God's presence, uh, we get to encounter the real living presence of Jesus uh, as we worship him together. And man, don't ever close yourself off to one of those sides. You know, I think some Christians have said, no, I'm going to pursue the, the purely supernatural aspect of my faith. And they, they benefit from that side of it. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that side, but they miss out on the richness of doctrine and truth and the, the historical context of the Christian faith all through history. And then there's those that reject the moving of the, the Holy Spirit, finding it to be weird or uh, out of order, something like that, maybe a little scary to them, kind of feeling like out of control. And they miss out on what God can do in these moments in his presence. And so as a church, you know, we seek to be faithful to what I believe is orthodox and historic Christianity that embraces both the supernatural and the cerebral. That, that embraces the move of the Holy Spirit apart from our kind of contrivances of how we see God and how he's supposed to move, right? I mean, I feel like sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't read our order of service and I just wish he would just touch base with me first. I'm joking in case you didn't, yeah. Some of you were like, what? Okay. Um, but it's both sides of that. And so, man, what a, what a wonderful time together today. I'm excited to be with you guys. Before we jump into the message, uh, I just want to give a, a call to anybody that is able and or willing this summer to jump on board and fill a, a role on the dream team. Um, my dad always said this. He said, if you see a turtle on a fence post, what you do know is he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> I'll let some of you digest that statement for a minute. What it means is uh, when you come to church on Sunday and you see the worship team and the, the ushers and the greeters and the people helping you find a parking spot and the fact that our kids are being uh, safely watched and discipled and there's a wonderful kids program and there's a message prepared and there's people making coffee and the donuts are here. Uh, that didn't just happen out of the goodness of someone's heart. Like it happened through intentional teamwork of the dream team serving and making it happen. So can we give our dream team a hand? It's awesome. And all of that together creates this expression where we get to preach the gospel and live out the gospel as a community of faith here in our community. Um, we get to, to be that. And that happens a lot by what happens from the dream team on Sunday, what they contribute. And so this summer, we have a, a couple of our, our staff members, two of the guys on staff, uh, their wives are having babies, so they're going to be on paternity leave. And then um, uh, Becca, our kid's pastor, she's having a baby, so she's going to be on maternity leave. And so Bethany and I don't want to do everything this summer. Um, I'm teasing. I know Nikki and Mark, those of us on staff, the remainders, us, we, we're going to hold the line, but we would, we'd love it if we could see some people uh, step up and, and fill some roles. All joking aside, we have a few uh, spaces available for serving this summer. And if you want to jump up and, and take that step, I'm not asking you to commit until Jesus comes back, just for the summer. And uh, get a taste of how awesome it is to serve and participate in this community and be part of getting that turtle up on that fence post every week. There's a, a sign up at the next table and you can sign up there if you are willing to jump, and fill, jump in and fill some uh, holes that could potentially be there this summer. 
and uh, we're excited about that. Somebody said, I'm in. All right. I said, I'm in, but amen works too. (laughs) I mean, they both work, right? Amen is so be it. I'm in is, you know, okay. Jumping in today, guys, uh, we're going to continue in our series called Rewired. Rewired is all about God changing how we think. Why does God want to change how you think? What's wrong with the way you think? Everything. And me too, right? Included. Uh, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. God doesn't think like we think. He doesn't agree with our politics. He doesn't agree with our economics. He doesn't agree with our decision making. He wants to get in on the inside of you and help you think like he thinks. Why? Because like it says in the book of Romans, he has a good and pleasing and perfect will for your life. And so we've been talking over the last few weeks about letting God transform us by changing the way we think. Oftentimes, we want God to transform our circumstances and leave us the same. But what God actually wants to do is something a lot more, uh, a lot better, but also a lot maybe more stressful and painful at times, which is transform us through the circumstances. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think, and then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Over the past few weeks, we've kind of talked about a few categories, ways that God changes how we think. We talked about, number one, that God changes and transforms our thinking through a disciplined study and practice of his word. Uh, Every day, as a Christian, we should be going to the word of God and leaning in and looking in like a mirror and saying, God, shape me, change me, change how I think based on your word. What a treasure, what a gift it is to be able to study God's word and be transformed by his word. That should be the number one step of every Christian disciple is every day make it a habit and a pattern in your life to engage with God's word and not just read it or listen to it and kind of forget it, but actually read it and listen to it with the intention of applying it to yourself and to your life. Number two, God changes us and changes our, transforms our thinking through a fresh revelation of who he is and who we are. I find that most of the, the problems we get into in life come from a misunderstanding or a lack of connection with God and who he really is. Maybe people have rejected God based on a caricature that that was made of him in culture, or even those of us in the Christian faith, we often see God as something other than what he really is, this wonderful, loving father, this God of truth who is both transcendent and also eminent. God is above all the entire universe. He's all powerful. He's worthy of praise and honor and glory, but he's also your loving father that wants to have a personal relationship with you. He's willing to speak into both the grand and the small areas of our life. And when we don't understand who God is, we often get off. And that leads us to a misunderstanding of who we are. One of the big things that we talk about here at Joy Church is bringing clarity on who God is so that we can also know who we are. We talk about being made on purpose and for a purpose. How can you know who you are and what you were made to do and accomplish and what your place is on planet earth and and the the rest of your days know what to, to do and what to live out if you don't understand who God is? and who you are, your identity in Christ. And so God will use this to transform our thinking. We'll be talking about that more next week. But today, uh, I wanna talk about community, that God transforms our thinking through intentional participation in Christian community, through intentional participation in Christian community. Now, the idea of community often sounds better than it is in practice. Because how many people are like, I just love, you know, community. I love having my neighbors and I'm there for them and they're, they're there for me and community's great, relationship, woo! And then you meet real people. 
I was thinking about our church here, Joy Church, you know, all of us, this is our church here today. Uh, man, it would be a perfect church if none of us went here. I mean, it would always be clean. It would, you know, there would never be too loud. Nobody would ever get in any arguments, right? If there was just, if it was purely empty and only God came to church here, wouldn't it just be a great church? You're like, man, that's the church I've been looking for. That's the guy. There's one dude, he's like in Wyoming on top of a mountain and he started a church and he's the only one that goes and it's a perfect church, right? The idea of community sounds great in theory and we want it. In fact, I would say we're actually wired for it. We're designed for it and I'll make a case for that in a few, in a few minutes, but the, the practice of it, what actually happens, ends up sometimes not always going so well. Community is family. And I think about my family. Bethany and I have three beautiful kids, Evie, Jack, and Penelope. They are awesome. They're incredible. They're growing in, in their love of the Lord, and they're, they're growing in their maturity and their education, all, all these things. But kids will say the darndest things, right? And a couple years ago, I think Penny was maybe three or four, and I went out in the backyard and Bethany was going to give me a haircut. So I took my shirt off. Nobody stumble, please. And I sat down, you know, and she's giving me a haircut. The laughter was too sincere, guys. Um, That hurts. (laughs) So uh, I'm out there with my shirt off and my daughter comes out, Penny, and she screams at the top of her lungs. And the neighbors are in their yard in the back and all this. She's like... Dad, why are you naked? And I'm like, shut up, you know. Shut it. So I'm a very private person. I don't like to be, you know, seen or heard. You know, I, I, anything like that. Uh, I, I don't want my shirt off and I don't want her to yell that. And so now I'm thinking all the scenarios are running through my brain. Like the neighbors think, here's this overweight fellow. He's sunbathing in the nude in his backyard, and now this small child has come out and, and has identified this naked man. And like, what do you say in that moment? I'm not naked. I mean, what do you do? You can't correct the error. That is the real face of community, my friends. Like, what do you do with that? Where do you put that? There's no category. So I think I shrunk into myself and, and crawled into the house and, you know, whatever. But that's community. G.K. Chesterton says this, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. I mean, it's great when you need to borrow flour and you go over to your neighbor, but then when he's playing Def Leppard at two in the morning on his drum set because he drank too much Jack Daniels and you're like, I hate this guy, you know? We, we had, one of our neighbors was screaming at our children because they were throwing dirt clods against the fence and she was yelling at them and so Bethany and I were in the house kind of like, <laughs> like <laughs> laughing. Because real community is kind of messy. Neighbors, uh, I think Bethany went out and confronted the lady at some point. Okay, ma'am, I think that's enough, you know. One time that same neighbor yelled at me because I was in my office and I had my music playing and I probably listened to worship music or something and she's like, you could turn it down. And I was like, closing the window, trying to act like it wasn't me. (laughs) Sorry, neighbors. I just want my neighbors to learn how to love people like Jesus loves them, right? So I'm, I'm taking that posture. We, as the community of Jesus, are meant to be this living picture. Paul talks about this in Corinthians, a living epistle or a living letter, this on-earth representation of of the love of God um, and, and what God intends relationships to look like. Listen to what Jesus said. In John 13, 34, he says, I am now, so now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. That is brutal. 
Because the standard of the, the command that Jesus gives us is that we're supposed to love each other like Jesus loves us. That is very different than the way I want to love you and you want to love me. Uh, that, that means sacrificially. I mean, think about everything Jesus would do in each situation, and that is the standard of Christian community. He says in verse 35, not only is that the standard that he's holding us to, but it's also the way that the world is going to perceive us by our approach to that standard. In verse 35, he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So the mark of a Christian disciple is not how well they address the social and cultural issues of their day. The mark of a Christian disciple is not how well they answer the tough questions that people bring to them about, you know, is there or isn't there a God and what about dinosaurs or whatever they come up with. The mark of a Christian disciple isn't how much you give in church or, 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 or how much you serve or whatever. The mark is your love for one another. It's a, it's, it's a broader standard that is kind of ruthless when you think about it. Because in no way can you let yourself off the hook and say that I'm not meant to actually do what Jesus did because Jesus gave everything for his disciples. And he told them, if you're my disciple, the way the world is going to judge you, not because of their decision, but because of what I said, is how well you love one another. Here's the deal. It is tough to love your family. In fact, I would say that it's the toughest place to love because it's easy to love the world. I love it, man. People in our culture right now, we are so good at loving people that we have no ability to impact. It's like, man, stand, stand with whatever country we need to stand with right now. I'm just standing with all the countries. I'm just standing with them. Can I get my latte? Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, we don't, it, we don't do anything about our standing for everything. Do you know what I'm saying? You're like, he's getting cultural again this week. I'm not. This is going to be a positive message. Just cool. Everybody's cool. We're all good. Everybody's good. We're, we love to love all the people in the world that we can't impact, but it's excruciatingly hard to love the person that just bugs the snot out of you on your street. It's interesting because the Bible talks about the fact, it says God so loved the world. So I would say it this way, it's God's job to love the world, but Jesus said, here's what I want you to do, love your neighbor as yourself. It's God's job to love the world, it's my job to love my neighbor and like Chesterton said, often the neighbor and the enemy are the same person. And nothing says this more than family. I mean, I, I, the, probably the meanest stuff I've ever said, I said to my little sister as we were kids in fighting. I mean, she deserved it, but other than that, I shouldn't have said it, you know. Uh, we, we would go at each other because family, there is no artifice. They know exactly who you are. Isn't that a problematic place to be? And then here's Jesus with the audacity to say that when he's going to bring us out of the world and out of our sin and out of our mess, that he's going to put us in this environment where now we're around a bunch of other stinky, uh, evil people, and he calls it the church, and we're supposed to like work together and then love each other? It's a crazy idea. But that's what he's doing. That's what Christian community is. All these people called out of isolation. I mean, I want you to think about sin. The ultimate expression of sin is isolation. In, in our world, when somebody really messes up socially and they break the law, maybe they're like murdering people and eating them, you know, just the stuff like that. What do we do? We either isolate them from existence by putting them to death, or if we don't put them to death and, and you know, go to the death penalty, we actually put them in something called solitary confinement. Which what we're, what we're saying here is we're admitting that you are so bad at this thing we call life. You are so bad at being a human being that we are literally going to make you go into timeout forever. 
We're going to stick you in this box and you have to be all by yourself. You can't even be around the other bad people. What does that say on the flip side? It says that we acknowledge that a human who's actualizing what they were meant to be will not be in solitary confinement, but will rather be engaged in meaningful and fruitful relationships. And what we're actually admitting in this kind of weird backwards way is we understand that we were wired for community. We were wired for relationship, but there's something that has influenced us and infected us that makes it hard and our relationships are broken. Sin has brought death, not just into our physical bodies, not just into our spirits, not just into our emotions and our, our, our mental processes. It's brought death into our relationships. But I want you to think about the picture of the cross. As Christ hangs on the cross, what is he doing? He is reconnecting that which was severed and broken. He is rebuilding that relationship vertically between us and God that was severed by our sin. But he is also horizontally reconnecting us and giving us the capacity to now live in the way we were intended to live, which is as a, uh, a self or a, a loving community in relationship. Christian community is full participation in the family of God. It is life shared in wholehearted pursuit of Jesus, loving fiercely, serving willingly, and giving generously. It is guided in all things by the royal law of love. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It is characterized by common worship, devotion to pure doctrine, full fellowship, confession of sin, forgiveness of wrongdoing, and commitment to the mission of Jesus to make disciples. Christian community is this wonderful thing that Jesus has saved us out of isolation, out of our sin, and put us into this community of people that are striving together to be more like Jesus and achieve the purpose that he's called us to. Paul shares this in Ephesians chapter four. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Why are we instructed to make allowance for others' faults? Because you're going to be in a situation where people are going to do the wrong thing. Yes, even in the church. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Why do we need to be bound together with peace? Because we will be pulled apart by division. That will be the temptation. That will be the attack. For there is one body, say it with me, and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. What's being spoken of here is the fact that when we get to heaven, there will be no political factions. It won't be like, well, here's the democratic side of heaven. The air's a little bit cleaner. The bike paths are you know, taken care of and everybody has enough to eat. Here's the Republican side of heaven and everybody has a gun. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, I'm just having fun. Okay, here's, we're not gonna have that. There's one glorious hope. When you get to heaven, it's not gonna be like, well, you were really environmentally savvy and sound and you really cared about the environment, so your heaven has better air quality, you know? And then you didn't care, so your heaven is like a slag pit. Like, it's not gonna be like that. It's just one place. Yeah. The, this community that we're called into, it's, it's unifying. One of the reasons I think the church is the most miraculous, dynamic community on planet Earth, why it is the hope of the world, 
why the church and why, why showing up on a Sunday and being here, just your very presence is an act of spiritual warfare. Why going to a joy group weekly and being there with other people and pursuing Jesus together and growing together is such a dynamic act of spiritual growth and maturity and even spiritual warfare against the kingdom of darkness is because this organization, this community is the only one on planet earth that defies the things that would divide us and embraces that which unites us at the foot of the cross. You see, in the church is uh, men and women. There is old and young, right? There's a, there's a gender divide. There's a generational divide. There are every level of socioeconomic classes represented here. There are different ethnicities. And we have chosen by just being here today to reject those categories and instead wear a label on our life that says redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, brought into a new family. And it's a powerful thing. And so... Today, I want to give you three lies about community and corresponding truths. These are things that we believe or we can embrace about community that are simply not true. Number one is this, all I need is God. When I was growing up, there was a song, it was a really awesome song, and I actually liked the song by Hillsong called, All I Need Is You, All I Need Is You, Lord, Is You, Lord. And I used to sing it, and then one day, I, my theological brain came online and it was like, well, that's a really nice melody, but it's actually biblically incorrect. Because all you need isn't God. You actually need other imperfect people in your life. And that's not my opinion. God himself said that. God himself created human beings not just to need God, but to need each other. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God was the one who said to Adam, his creation, his, his firstborn son, right, his creation, Adam, the, uh, the, the first man, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And it's interesting to me because Adam was not alone. He had God. He had access to God. He was at this point in his journey, didn't have any sin. He was going to live forever. He wasn't, hadn't, there was no fall, you know, there was no apple and the naked people. That hadn't happened yet, okay? This is pre that, and God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's from the mouth of God. It's not opinion. It's not philosophy. What it is is an acknowledgement of the way God actually created us. See, we are made in the image of God, and God himself in the Trinity exists in community. I'm going to leave that there. It's too deep to go into today. But God is always revolving and dancing, as Timothy Keller says, in this, in this loving relationship, even in himself. And if he made us in his image, we are also to operate in that same way. So human beings were not just meant to be in this isolated relationship with God. We were also to horizontally relate to one another. But sin has severed that, that bond with each other and made it broken our relationships. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there are two things you cannot do alone. You cannot be married alone and you can't be a Christian alone. And I think that's brilliant. The truth is this. It is impossible to live out authentic Christianity apart from community. You simply cannot do it. Now you say, what about somebody on a desert island and there's nobody else around? Can they be a Christian? Are they going to heaven? Sure. <laughs> Did you want me to answer that can God make a rock he can't lift to question now or whatever? Okay. So the reality is everything you see in the New Testament about what it means to be a follower of Jesus is always played out in, in context of a relationship. There's another person, sometimes pictured, sometimes not. But if you think about it, there's always, uh, there's always an other in, in everything that we're commanded to do. How can you follow Jesus and love your neighbor as yourself if you isolate yourself and you have no neighbors? 
How can you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and be kind and be gentle and be patient uh, if, if you aren't tempted to be impatient and you're not tempted to be unkind and you're not, does that make sense? And so to be a Christian is to live in the context of other people in community. And so this is a lie that says all I need is God. If you come to church on Sunday and you're like, man, I'm just here for God. I'm just gonna come in here and give my best to God. And then like, man, where the heck is my coffee? And like, you're not about other people. You're actually not worshiping God. Because Jesus said the two great commandments. Somebody said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everybody that was listening would have been like, yeah, I, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Love God, be a good person, and you get to go to heaven. If I do good things and I love God, I'm good. And then Jesus is like, hold on. There's a second of equal weight and importance. And everybody would have gone like this when he said that, because this was a pretty shocking thing. He said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you understand the language and the syntax and the context of this, what Jesus was saying is how you love other people is how much you really love God. And I hate that because there's so many people I don't want to love. Man, it's so easy to come to church and be like, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Man, God's so good. Isn't he good, brother? Yeah, he's good. God is perfect. Bethany gets on my nerves sometimes. And I get on her nerves sometimes. But you know when our worship is strong is when we are two imperfect people making the effort to love Jesus by serving the person who actually needs our love, the other broken human across the table, the other broken human across the group, the, the couch, you know, and the, and the room at Joy Group, the other broken human that you're serving on a Sunday. Second lie is this, I don't need you. Maybe we generally accept the idea of community Maybe we're like, yeah, you know, I am supposed to build a community, but, but there's this one person that really bugs me. Like, not that person. Of Surely not the Republicans. Surely not the Democrats. Surely not the people that, that believe in whatever I think is abhorrent. And Jesus says, yes, them. In fact, not just them as well, but especially them. Because anybody can love their friends, but only divinely can you love your enemies. Like, when somebody says, well, Jake, I'm just like so all about the things that I find to be abhorrent and yet Jesus tells me to wash their feet and love them and serve them and actually lay my life down for them, that, that requires now the supernatural power of God because I don't have it in me. How many of you know what I'm saying? So this idea of I, I don't need you, maybe I need some people but I don't really need you because you irritate me, you bug me, you rub me the wrong way, actually those are the people that you really do need. And Jesus has done this insidiously good thing by creating this environment where we get around people that are different than us and we call, he calls it the church and the imperfections that we all bring to the table actually help us to learn to be more like Jesus. So we absolutely need each other. Community, real Christian community does these three things. It challenges us, as we know, just from a study of basic you know, laws of, of nature, laws of the universe, there is no growth without resistance. If you want to grow bigger muscles, you have to break them down through resistance. If you want to grow uh, intellectually, uh, if you want to gain in knowledge, you have to challenge your brain and learn new things. Uh, if you want to grow socially, you have to do things you're more uncomfortable doing, uh, that you're uncomfortable doing so that you can learn how to do it. For instance, if you want to become a, an influencer, a public speaker, you have to actually get up and talk in front of people. 
and it's uncomfortable, but it makes you better at that thing. So we understand this, don't we? Challenge and resistance actually creates growth in our life, and community challenges us. Our culture loves to, to create echo chambers. What we, what we say is, if you challenge me, if you disagree with me, if you have a different opinion, uh, well, you're just a hater. I can dismiss you as a hater. Anyone that doesn't approve and agree with everything I think right now is a hater, and I can basically cast them out and go find the people that, I, that are like me. And, and at a time in history where we are technologically able to have the most open-minded discourse and, and, and challenging each other on opinions and ideas, we've actually done the opposite and created digital echo chambers where we essentially shout into a wall and the person that's exactly like us, thinks like us, votes like us, whatever, shouts back and we feel beautiful and wise. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the smartest of them all? Find your Reddit forum, it'll tell you that it's you. But when you go to church and people are like, nah, the way you live is like not good, man. We're like, what do you mean it's not good? You're, you're hating me. I'm not hating you, I'm loving you. Isn't it insane that in a world that's completely upside down, sane people look crazy? In a world that's totally upside down, a fallen world, it's still falling, when somebody gets turned right side up in the kingdom of God and they're like, wait, when somebody disagrees with me, that doesn't mean they hate me. It means they love me. Oh, but this is what happens. Community challenges us, helps us to grow. Number two, it changes us. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I'm different. I'm better. You're different. You're better because of each other. And three, completes us. The church is called the body of Christ. In the body, as the scriptures tell us, there's many parts. Somebody here is the elbow. Somebody's the pinky. Somebody's the armpit. You know who you are. I'll leave out the other body parts, you know. But they're all necessary. And we complete and complement each other. We together are able to be and do what God's called us to do. So it's a lie to say, I don't need you. You, you, do, need, you do need the other. You do, and you especially need the person that's not like you. You need the person at Joy Group that you're like, my wife, whenever they talk, I just want to like eat my nails off. Like I can't handle it. It sounds like on the chalkboard, especially they're helping you be more like Jesus. Number three, lie, you don't need me. So maybe you accept that you need other people and you need community and you, and you need God, but you also need others. But, but maybe your insecurity is causing you to rob the world and rob your church family of the gift of you. I mean, think about this. What is the lost, what is the opportunity cost of people that through insecurity just simply don't engage with who God's called them to be because they feel insecure or they feel like they can't handle that other person? The reality is that it's a lie that we say, you don't need me. Don't rob the world of your contribution. Don't rob your church family of your contribution because God has formed you with purpose, made you on purpose and for a purpose. He's gifted you. He's called you. Hey, Elbow, we need you. We're like Cousin It over here. We can't go anywhere without you, right? The rest of the hand is like trying to do something, and we need that elbow. What, what would the church look like if all of us in our imperfection embraced action and said, I'm not perfect. I'm not totally perfect and right with God. I'm not perfect in my relationships. I haven't lived a perfect life. I am saved by grace, and because I'm saved by grace, I can take steps in faith and start to be and be the person God's called me to be, even if I'm messing it up as I go. But a church of contributors, 
a church of people who are, who are motivated by the grace and the love of Jesus to be the church, not looking for some utopian, humanistic view of what the church is, but embracing the biblical view of what the church is, which is a place that was created by a perfect God for imperfect people to become perfect together, working on each other and growing together and becoming more like Jesus. If we would embrace that, we would do so much in our world. And so this is a lie that says, you don't need me. There's a wonderful book by, about, about Christian community by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Life Together. He said this in his book, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable, intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. We need each other. We need you. You need me. You need the person you don't like. We need God, yes, but this community, Jesus is using it to shape us and bring us to this place of family. A couple of action steps as we get ready to finish today and then we'll go get something delicious to eat. That is a spiritual command. Go do it. Number one, we need to begin to measure maturity by application, not information. If you come to church and you take in sermons and you take in services and, and you, you, know, you, you are a, con, a consumer or a connoisseur of information and yet it never finds its way from your brain to your hands or your feet, you are not mature, you are immature. You see, maturity is always this spectrum of moving from a consumer to a contributor. As Bethany and I raise our kids, we are at the level of, that they are appropriately giving them more and more responsibility so that when they are at a place where God calls them into their destiny, their character can handle the weight of that destiny. Yeah. That their, their maturity level matches the level of their calling. One of the reasons our society is so deeply and, and broken is because the vast majority of people are so insanely immature to the age that they are and the responsibility that they hold that, that, that there's, almost, there's just a breakdown in all levels of society. When we have politicians and we have leaders, even our presidents that can't control what they say, they can't control what they do, that shows that as a society, we have a, basically, we're just very, very immature. And part of it is because we have replaced information for action. And in the church, let it not be said that we value information above action. The reality is that spiritual maturity comes through ministry. Depth is in the doing. We grow the most when we are loving and serving and giving, when we have moved from consumers to contributors. Knowledge without application leads to spiritual sickness. Jesus' brother James said it this way. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. You're just playing a game. When I, look, when I read the Bible, when, I, when I'm in church and I hear a message like this about community and I go, man, community is a really good idea for someone else, then I'm immature. So a mature person says, how do I put this into action? How do I, if I see that it's true, if I embrace the truth of these words and what God is speaking to me through this, regardless of how I feel about Pastor Jake or the way he said it, or regardless of how I feel about what songs we sing or whatever, if I put all that aside, and I say, is this true? If it is, then I need to do something about it. That is where maturity comes. Good. Number two, we can harness the power of us. If we get this right, if we will begin to lean into Christian community, intentionally participate, not as consumers, but as contributors. 
You see, a family, uh, my children, they, they receive everything I have, but I expect everything that they are. There's not, the, the deal, it flows both ways 100%. And when you're in a family, you don't go, well, I guess you're just trying to get me to serve more, or you're just trying to get me to, to give more. No, not really. I want you to give your entire life to God and his family in the same way that I am, and us together, the power of us is gonna change the world. So my goal for, on every Sunday, every time I open my mouth, and if I talk to you in the foyer, um, you know, if you catch me running away from, from extroversion, and I happen to talk to you, I'm just teasing. But if you talk to me, my goal is always to help you and me take another step towards Jesus today. That's it. That's it. Because that's what discipleship is. So when I talk about this becoming a contributor and all that, I don't have an agenda for you. Jesus has an agenda for you. He wants you all in. Amen? Amen. I'm in. Amen. Jesus wants all of, all of us. We can't see the world change until we change and we come together and, and, and change it together. Third action step is I want to ask you to make a commitment to community by joining a joy group, not as a consumer, but because you recognize the truth of these words that God wants to change you through that community because you are that living letter. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. When the church of Jesus embraces this imperfect community and begins to serve each other and grow together and challenge each other and live in this authentic Christian community, it is a living billboard, a living letter to an unbelieving world that something supernatural has taken place and is taking place. That's the power of community. God's gonna transform our thinking. He's gonna transform our life. As we close today, I wanna read you this declaration. We're not gonna say it out loud together, but we'll put it up on social media or, or the notes or something and you can, you can use it if you want. But here's a, here's a commitment that I'm making and I'm gonna ask us to make as a church. I commit to express my devotion to Jesus by loving and serving my brothers and sisters in the household of faith as Christ loved and served me. Christ's grace, Christ's grace compels me to forgive every wrong. Christ's truth compels me to correct and receive correction. Christ's mercy compels me to hear and speak confession of sin. Christ's example compels me to selflessly serve without earthly recognition or reward. Christ's sacrifice compels me to lay my life down for others. Jesus, I pray today that you would let this word not go in one ear and go out the other, but be a seed that is planted in good soil in our hearts. Oh Lord, that we would see the power of living in real Christian community, intentionally participating in the awkward, in the uncomfortable, in the joy and in the sorrow. That Lord, we are a family, not in name only, but a real family. That the blood of Jesus flows through our veins and we are adopted into this family. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are this imperfect assembly of people that are beginning to show signs that you have done something supernatural that can absolutely change the world from the inside out and from the, from the bottom to the top. Jesus, let your goodness flow through us as we live out this message and we operate in community. Transform our thinking. We want to be more like you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes real quick before we finish up today. I just want to give an opportunity if you're here today and this is like your spiritual birthday and you say, you know what, Pastor Jake, I'm ready to join the family of God. I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. This is a great moment to do that. You can, you can receive Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and, and let him guide you and lead you in life. He wants to forgive your sins. He already paid for them at the cross and he wants to make you right with God. But that's just the very start. He wants to make you right with God, but he also wants to restore your relationships. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to love you and transform you and let you discover who he made you to be all along. So if that's you today and you say, Pastor Jake, I'm ready to go on this journey with Jesus. I wanna follow him. Would you just raise your hand so I can see and we'll pray together real quick. Thank you so much. Awesome. Anybody else that wants to put their faith in Christ today, just lift up your hand real quick. I can see and we're gonna pray together. All right, awesome. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know I have not lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you and to be right with others. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I give you my life in Jesus' name. Amen.